Welcome back to Deliver Us. Just as a reminder, this podcast does talk about child sexual abuse. I feel like sometimes I am a 42-year-old grown-up woman who has borne two children and run for office multiple times and have done all kinds of independent adult things, but I do worry about I do worry about disappointing people. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. For two weeks, we listened to the stories of abuse survivors. And while they each had a different path to healing, they all had a common cry for justice. Michael Mack just wanted the chance to talk with his molester. Part of my healing journey would include a conversation with him. David Clossy tried to sue the church, but the statute of limitations had run out. Sorry, can't help you. Statute of limitations has expired. The Fortneys got a settlement in the early 90s, but were placed under a gag order for 10 years. There was always an elephant in the room because of our gag order. And Mari Collins took advocacy into her own hands when her diocese looked the other way. They were refusing to do anything to help me get justice. Justice can take many different forms. Prison, penance, financial reparations. But at the core, there's the idea that actions have consequences and that apologies and prayers aren't enough to repair the damage caused by our actions or our failure to act. But how far do we need to go to right a wrong? And who's responsible? Is it just the abuser? Is it the bishop? What about the bishop who was never involved in cover-up, but inherited a diocese stacked with abuse cases? Really, the question we're asking here is, what does it mean to bring justice to the survivors of child sexual abuse? We've learned Honolulu's Catholic diocese has reached settlements with more than two dozen people who say they were molested by church leaders when they were children. The heads of the Roman Catholic Church in Manhattan and Brooklyn agreeing on a settlement for six victims of abuse. But the payout, not through a court case, instead from a $100 million compensation fund created by the archdiocese last year. And some important bills are now advancing. One is a bill called the Hidden Predator Act. That is what New York State lawmakers are hoping for when they pass the Child Victims Act, a measure that would change when survivors can file a lawsuit for their abuse. We have a moral obligation to support those who have been harmed by Catholic ministers. And the church has put this in writing. In the first section of the Dallas Charter, bishops wrote that the church needs to promote healing and reconciliation with victims. This includes providing access to counseling, spiritual assistance, support groups, and other social services. All of this costs money. But on top of the support services, there are also court settlements that award punitive damages. That is, payments that are meant to punish a defendant. These can cost a diocese an enormous amount of money to settle. So much that many dioceses worry about bankruptcy. And with good reason. 
According to Penn State law, 18 Catholic religious organizations, that's 15 dioceses and three religious orders, have filed for bankruptcy since 2004. The Roman Catholic Diocese of Gallup is preparing to file for bankruptcy. The Diocese of Winona, Rochester, plans to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Well, that's right. They are filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and they are also working on a reorganization process. But this fear of bankruptcy sounds like a hollow plea to survivors. At one point, he had... This is Patty Fortney, a survivor we heard from in Episode 6. One attorney had even said to my family... During a settlement, um, the attorney turned to her family and said... Um, well, what do you want us to do? You're already asking for help. You're going to be taking the money out of mouths of the poor. The Fortneys have heard this line a lot. Laura Fortney remembers hearing it straight from a bishop. And last night at the listening session, the bishop's excuse was, if they passed this window, it would bankrupt the church. A parishioner said, well, what about the lives, the many lives that have been bankrupted? So be it then, if it bankrupts the church, then we rebuild it. It's not just about money. It's about breaking the silence, naming one's abuser in court, and making sure they'll never hurt another child again. And in Catholic theology, justice must go hand-in-hand with mercy. This means justice isn't merely punitive, but restorative. It's committed to healing the relationships that have been fractured by abuse. So, where to start? Well, the one thing that we've heard survivors say again and again is this. We must change the statute of limitations for victims of child sexual abuse. So what exactly is a statute of limitation? Statute of limitations are nothing but deadlines. This is Marcy Hamilton. I'm the founder and CEO of Child USA and the Robert A. Fox Professor of Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. I've heard Marcy's name several times before in my research. And a lot of survivors confirm she's the legal authority on statute of limitations. It's the deadline for pressing charges or the deadline for filing a lawsuit. And for many decades in the United States, the statute of limitations for child sex abuse would be two years after the event. So a six-year-old would be sexually assaulted and they had all of up to eight years old. We can all recognize the absurdity in this law, right? Two years for a child to come forward? Highly unlikely. And it's not always two years. The deadlines vary from state to state. But here's why statute of limitations, or SOLs, exist in the first place. Statutes of limitations are good in contract cases and property ownership. We want to know who owns property. We want to know who has rights under contracts. Another legal explanation for SOLs is to protect people from being accused of a crime that happened so far in the past that it's nearly impossible for someone to defend themselves. Or for prosecutors to find the evidence or witnesses needed to convict someone. So statute of limitations makes sense for some crimes. But with child sexual abuse, it's different. It's my view that we should not have a statute of limitations on child sex abuse because Perpetrators may have at least 150 victims over the course of their lives, and the child doesn't understand what happened. They don't understand sex, they don't understand abuse, and they certainly don't understand it from someone they love and adore. 
why have there been deadlines when it comes to child sexual abuse, especially because kids don't even come to understand it as abuse for decades? Well, I think we've been victims of mass denial combined with ignorance. Many people, because it was kept so secret, had no idea that it was so common that it's one in four girls and one in six boys. If we were to understand the prevalence of it, it would change the world. So we've seen a lot of reform of statute of limitation laws recently. What are the statute of limitations that we can change? And are there any that are absolutely fixed? So there's two categories. There's criminal statute of limitations and civil statute of limitations. And California tried to revive the expired criminal and civil statutes of limitations. The United States Supreme Court pretty quickly said it was unconstitutional to revive a criminal statute of limitations. So what that means is once your criminal statute of limitations against a child predator expires, nobody can do anything about it. So that means, well, can you do anything in civil law with a lawsuit? And the answer is it turns out, yes, you can revive the expired civil statute of limitations. So this is why we see victims suing the church, but they haven't been able to necessarily put their perpetrator in jail. Exactly. That's exactly it. So, you know, the problem is we have two sets of victims. We've got the victims from this past who've been shut out by uninformed law, and we've got the victims right now. So for the victims right now, what we need to do is eliminate it going forward. Mm -hmm. Which we can do. Which we can do without a question. We've already had 40 states eliminate the criminal SOL and just about 10 states eliminate altogether the civil SOL. In order to keep these laws straight, I've been mapping them onto a grid. So imagine this with me. You've got two kinds of laws, criminal and civil. Criminal punishment comes from the state and puts convicted perpetrators in jail. This investigation could lead to criminal charges. For a potential criminal investigation as a sex abuse scandal unfolds. Civil cases are between two parties, like a survivor and a diocese and they result in financial settlements. A settlement today in the civil case against the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. The Green Bay Catholic Diocese has been found guilty in a civil lawsuit involving a pedophile priest. Both criminal and civil statutes can be changed for the future. And civil laws from the past can be changed through windows, usually around a two-year period of time, during which adults can come forward with their abuse, even if it's decades old. But criminal SOLs cannot be retroactively applied to the past. As Marcy said, it's unconstitutional. Why? Well, because it's like passing a law for something that wasn't a crime in the past, and then holding someone accountable for breaking a law before it was a law. Bottom line, the church can be sued, but very few perpetrators can be put in prison. That's not the Catholic Church's decision. It's the state's. So let's hear from someone who's been advocating for these changes in her state legislature. So my name is Terry Nullowitz. I am a state representative here in Georgia. I represent House District 42, which is in suburban Atlanta. The SOL reforms Terry has been trying to pass are called the Hidden Predator Bills. The purpose of these Hidden Predator Bills is to change and extend that statute of limitations. 
So historically, what have been the statute of limitations in Georgia? And then how have those changed recently? So it's typically seven years from the time the crime was committed to be able to bring your case forward. And what the Hidden Predator Act in 2015 changed is it gave victims a longer window from the time you realize the abuse has happened. You would then have, I believe in 2015, it was two years to come forward and do everything from hire an attorney who could then help you with this prosecution to go ahead and and press the charges. It extended that window. So in 2015, this bill passed, but there were some loopholes that saved the church and other entities from lawsuits. So in 2018, they introduced a second Hidden Predator Act. It passed unanimously in the Georgia House, but failed in the Senate in large part because of lobbyists acting on behalf of the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church. This really angered a lot of Catholics. It was upsetting because people thought, well, wait, I've been making these contributions to my parish, and I thought that it was going to the poor. I thought that it was going to help with the refugees. I did not think it was going to pay lobbyists to come down here and fight something that we tend to recognize is a pretty outrageous wrong. Terry was among those outraged Catholics. Not only had she grown up in the church and put her two kids through Catholic school, but her son was also a Boy Scout. So she was doubly invested and felt an obligation to do something. That is when I approached the sponsors of the legislation who were still in the House and said, this is the lens that I'm coming through looking at this. I'm coming at this as a parent. I'm coming at this as a Catholic. I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who has children who were involved in the Boy Scouts and I want to be a part of this conversation, and I don't know what that's going to mean yet, but I I want to bring my voice to this conversation. So there really was no question about what Terry needed to do. And she told both her parish priest and her bishop, Wilton Gregory, that she'd be advocating for the reforms that the church had previously lobbied against. At the time, it was just that I felt that it was important as a Catholic, as a Catholic school mom, and as a lawmaker, that I do bring my voice to this conversation. Terry has a stake in multiple worlds. The church, the Boy Scouts, the government. And this lets her see things more equitably. For instance, she knew that part of the reason the church had lobbied against SOL reforms was because initially they were only directed at private institutions, while public organizations were not included in the bill. This struck Terry not only as unjust, but incomplete in terms of protecting children everywhere. I think that every voice needs to be at the table. I think that's the only way we are ever going to thoroughly address this. You can't just talk about the Catholic Church. You can't just talk about the Boy Scouts. You can't just talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. You can't just talk about youth sports leagues or parks and recreation programs in different cities and counties. You have to talk about all of it, and you have to view all of these survivors equally. And I think from that aspect, it is very important to make sure that there is a level playing field, whether it's public institutions or private institutions, whichever entities are complicit in covering up this abuse, they all have to be taken to task. Terry, what has been the hardest part of this whole journey for you? The day that this legislation was filed, I remember just driving home from the Capitol and I was just nauseous. I was sick to my stomach with just worry, like, you know, are people going to be upset? Are they going to think that I'm somehow abandoning the church? 
This is what I love about Terry's story. She brings her whole self to this fight for justice. The part of her that's righteously angry, and the part of her that's worried what her pastor will think. And she shows us that it's normal to feel these tensions while still pressing forward. And then I thought about it more and I thought, okay, well, who's going to be angry that I've brought forth legislation that's raising awareness of these crimes, that is giving these survivors an opportunity to find justice, to find closure? Do I really care if the people who are going to be angry about that are angry at me? And the answer is no, because this is the right thing to do. It's certainly the right thing to do. But why now? Many people are quick to point out that all this abuse, it happened decades ago. And the church is now a lot safer for children. And it's important to recognize this progress. But as Terry tells me, we haven't totally reckoned with the past. Is the Catholic Church since 2002 a different organization? Absolutely. But that's independent of the fact that for decades, these crimes were covered up. The other thing is that the impact of these crimes, the impact of this abuse is generational. It frames how they go into adulthood. It frames how they approach their future relationships. It frames the kinds of parents that they are and how they parent their children. It, the way that these crimes resonate is so profound. And I think that we can't diminish that impact by saying, oh, well, look at what we're doing now. Yes, what we're doing now is different and it's great, but it doesn't change the fact that these things did happen and we have to come to terms with this as Catholics. If the impact of abuse is felt for decades, then for decades, we must stay committed to the fight for justice. And the other thing is, it's going to take us just as long to know if reforms have worked to reduce abuse. So in that time, we need the law to make sure survivors are heard. What I think is clear in Georgia is that there is now recognition from members of both parties in the General Assembly that this is a conversation that we need to have. And I am very hopeful that we will be able to put together something that is comprehensive and substantial to finally address how we want to legislatively make changes to the statute of limitations for childhood sexual abuse. Changing SOLs is first about granting victims the justice that they were previously denied. But hearing from these survivor advocates also changes the way our society thinks about abuse. I don't ask my child, has anyone abused you at school this week? It's more, you know, does anyone make you feel uncomfortable? If you're in a situation where you do feel uncomfortable, know that it's okay to leave that situation. It's okay that you might even hurt someone's feelings. They might tell you that you're hurting their feelings. That's okay. You can leave that situation. Do you feel like your faith has in some way inspired you to respond like this? Oh, absolutely. I remember having a conversation with my mother saying, well, yeah, there are going to be a lot of things that you might not like about the Catholic Church, but that's just part of the process of being Catholic. And if there is something that you don't like, if you do see something that you view as an injustice, you are supposed to speak up about it, that it's okay to have doubts, it's okay to struggle, that it doesn't mean that you're not a good Catholic, it means that you're a Catholic. As Marcy and Terry have both made clear, widening the statute of limitations would allow victims to seek justice. But 
by extending the civil statute of limitations, church officials worry there could be an avalanche of lawsuits. And these, in turn, could bankrupt local dioceses. That's because civil lawsuits include both victim compensation and punitive damages against the church. And so we need to know, will these settlements and expensive lawsuits actually bring justice? First of all, in the United States, if you hurt someone, you have to pay them (laughs) for the harm you did to them. That's Marcy Hamilton again. I have always felt that this is a very blunt instrument for punishing nonprofits. And this is Tom Reese, a Jesuit and senior analyst at Religion News Service. Marcy and Tom come at this topic from very different angles. If GM cuts corners to save money and lives are lost through accidents because they didn't want to spend the money to make their cars safe, well, then you punish them financially because they did this out of a financial motive. There's nobody who profits financially from a nonprofit. Even if the diocese has to pay out hundreds of millions of dollars, this isn't going to have an impact on the bishop's lifestyle. And there are no stockholders. The people that it's going to punish are the parishioners who put their money into the collection basket, the donors who gave money, and the people who would benefit by the money that would be spent by the church. So if money goes out, okay, well, that's going to affect the budget. That means cutting scholarships for uh, school kids, cutting uh, back on uh, programs to help the poor, hospitals or subsidies to poor parishes. We've seen parishes close. But as Marcy points out, survivors can use bankruptcy as a tool to force change in the church. I think a great example is the Wilmington Archdiocese bankruptcy, where the survivors in that bankruptcy were so intent on reforming the child protection system in that particular diocese that they refused to settle on the money, even when there was a money agreement, until the diocese had completely agreed to their gold standard child protection standards. So what these cases do that is so empowering is they let the individual ask the system to change. Because for most of them, they have survivor's guilt. They feel like if they'd come forward earlier, then no one else would have been hurt. They need to be able to say, I did something so that no one else will be hurt. And so telling their story is important, but getting change based on their story is really, really important to them. We've already heard many people say that it's really hard to believe that the Catholic Church, with its Caravaggio paintings and Sistine Chapel, could ever run out of money. But Tom says it's not that simple. I mean, you can look at dioceses and say, boy, look at these beautiful big churches. Look at the locations they're in. For example, take a look at St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue. If the Archdiocese of New York tore it down and put up a skyscraper, it could make hundreds of millions of dollars. That's prime real estate. Well, first of all, the city of New York would not allow them to do it. It's a historic monument. Instead, what you've got is a money pit that needs constant maintenance. The heating bill alone and the air conditioning bill alone is astronomical. 
Uh, this is not a money-making operation. On a balance sheet, the potential value of church assets can seem quite high. But the church can't sell many of those assets without crippling its ministries. For example, maintaining St. Patrick's Cathedral or running a high school creates more expenses than it brings revenue. There's a reason we call these organizations nonprofits. If you cut out endowments that fund Catholic ministries, you can stymie the very cash flows that keep these charitable works afloat. And even if you're going to sell and liquidate those assets to pay for lawsuits, the U.S. courts need to know who actually owns them. And that can't be neatly summarized. Dioceses are organized under the laws of their state. There's no universal law that determines how a diocese or how a church is organized. For example, a common one in the past was what they called corporation souls, where the bishop owned everything, and others have each parish separately incorporated. This means that each Catholic institution, be it a school, hospital, or church, is separately owned and financed. And this practice of separately incorporating didn't start with sex abuse cases. It started with local parishes being sued because somebody slipped on the floor or some kid was injured on the basketball court. And they sued, and the parish might not have much money, but then they could always go after the diocese. So they started following legal advice and separately incorporating When a diocese or a parish is facing a lawsuit with a potentially high cost, they face a real risk of bankruptcy. And to someone like me, who has a very basic financial literacy, bankruptcy sounds real bad. And it is bad. But Marcy helps me understand it's not total ruin. So a little background on bankruptcy. When the bishops talk about bankruptcy, what they're really talking about is Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is voluntary bankruptcy. It's not that you're indigent. It's not that you don't have assets. What Chapter 11 does is think of a corporation that's trying to protect all of its assets. So it has a lot of people coming after it for debts, and it now wants to put up a wall and say, okay, I have all my assets over here. Here are all the debtors. We're going to pay you what we can afford. That's what Chapter 11 is. And for those dioceses that have done that, basically, they've protected their assets quite successfully. It does seem reasonable for the church to protect the assets that help support its ministry. But at the same time, many people aren't convinced that the diocese will give an honest and transparent account of their finances. Something like this happened back in 2007. What happened in San Diego is San Diego declared bankruptcy. And the federal judge said, well, tell me what your holdings are as part of this bankruptcy proceeding. And they came in with a list. And she said, I think you probably have more than this. I'm going to appoint an independent forensic accountant who's going to tell us what you actually own. Well, this forensic accountant came in with numerous, very pricey pieces of real estate that had been left off intentionally. She threw them out of court. She said, you don't even belong in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, let alone any bankruptcy. After a more thorough accounting of its assets, the Diocese of San Diego wound up doubling its settlement offer in 2007. 
I think it's the over-lawyerization of not just this church, but American churches. I honestly think that too many clergy are listening to lawyers, even if I am a lawyer, instead of their hearts and souls about what's right. So, yeah, they can afford these settlements. There's an ongoing debate about what the church can afford without crippling its ministry. Tom and Marcy disagree on a number of points, especially around the question of whether punitive damages are appropriate for nonprofits. But they do agree on one thing. The church does have a financial obligation to help these victims, period. And to do this, Tom recommends that dioceses set up a victim's compensation fund. Basically, what the diocese would do would be to give a chunk of money to a board of people, totally independent of the diocese, so that survivors of abuse could come in and tell their story to these people. They would not be priests. They would not be employees of the diocese. These would be independent people, something like the uh, 9-11 commission that provided compensation to people who were hurt by uh, the terrorist attack. So a survivor could come in, they would not need a lawyer, they would come in and tell their story, and then the board would decide, you know, how much money they would get. It would not be the diocese deciding this. I will say, as a general matter, I support them. But it's not the kind of non-adversarial proceeding one would think it is. Most victims need legal advice on whether the payment is fair, whether or not they can get more information, what they can do. I think lawyers charge less because you do less for one of these compensation funds. But the most important part is that there are survivors who don't have the ability, either emotionally or because of their families or whatever else, to go public or to survive a lawsuit. And too many child sex abuse victims die of drug overdoses and suicide. So if there is a less stressful route for some of them, for the homeless person who needs help right now, I think these compensation funds can be quite good. The bishops also seem to be warming up to the idea of victim compensation funds. On his weekly radio show, Cardinal Dolan touted the success of the victim compensation fund they're using in New York City. And so I said, okay, I need to ask an independent outsider to be the one to meet with these people, to assess their allegations and then to reach some type of agreement and resolution with them. So it was kind of easy to find one because the name, sort of like the Babe Ruth of these people, is Ken Feinberg, who did the 9-11 resolution, who did the British Petroleum oil spill, who did Penn State. So I asked him, and he said, sure, we'll do it for you. And it's we're in our third year now. And in this and case, the money so isn't coming out of the collection basket. We took a loan. Now, how are we going to pay that off? Well, we're going to pay it off from other income that the church gets. Where does the church get its money, Monsignor? From God's people, mm -hmm. all right? Free will offerings, their contributions. Thank you. But we also do have some income from rental of buildings and investments 
that the church has shrewdly made in the past. Jesus wants us to be sound stewards over sure. the money that God's people has entrusted us, so we don't put it in a cigar box, okay? So we're using that to gradually pay off the debt. Right now, Joe, am I, is it at $60 million? $60 million, wow. Monsignor. Now, you, wow. you divide that up. That's 300 victims, and we've paid out $60 million to them. So while the church can't easily sell a historical site like St. Patrick's Cathedral or Michelangelo's artwork, some dioceses may have other real estate investments that can support victims' compensation. But still, Marcy says it's really important victims' compensation funds provide more than just money. I think that they need to reveal the files that go with the victims' abuse. You know, victims want to know... When did you know about this? It's helpful because they blame themselves. You know, why did I stay after school? Why did I agree to be the altar boy that came early in the morning? It wasn't their fault. And if they understand that they were being led into a trap in many ways, it takes some of that guilt off their shoulders. The facts help validate survivors. But many victims' compensation funds don't have the same power as the courts to uncover the truth. You see, in the preparation of a lawsuit, each party can request documents and files that are relevant to the case. Subpoenas can be used to ensure real transparency and accountability. But those things aren't required for a victims' compensation fund. Tom recognizes this, too. Now, I will acknowledge there is one critique of this. And that is a lot of advocates for litigation want to see the diocese taken to court so what it did becomes public. I think also there's another way of doing that, and that is to have the diocese go totally transparent, open up its files, have an independent group of forensic auditors and police and prosecutors, former judges, whatever, come in, look at the files and do a uh, truly independent report on who knew what and who did what in the diocese. So that would satisfy, I think, the need for some transparency and accountability. Justice, transparency, and healing are all connected. And current statutes of limitations can work against all three, especially in cases of child sexual abuse. They set the deadline far too soon for any person to piece together their childhood trauma before a court of law. Altering these statutes can help victims. But justice needs to go farther than just deciding how much the church should pay. These cases should help protect children and change broken structures. Society and the church haven't found the perfect solution. But thanks to survivors like the Fortney sisters and the work of people like Terry, Marcy, and Tom, we are developing ways to move toward restorative justice. So the question we're left with is, do the bishops and church leadership have the courage to get it right this time? And so next week, we'll look at how the church can hold bishops accountable. We'll hear again from Mari Collins, the survivor who Pope Francis appointed to the Vatican's Commission for the Protection of Minors. I remember dealing, talking to one of these people in the Vatican, and he actually said, 
we know how to deal with all this. We've been doing it for years. And my reaction to that, in my own head, certainly was, yes, you've been doing it for years, but you've been getting it wrong for years. And we'll speak with church experts on what role, if any, the Vatican can play in policing bishops. There, it seems to me, the Pope could intervene and issue sort of a, a micro-fix to the Code of Canon Law. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundra. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. This episode was written by me and Eric Sundra. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.